pray. Lord, every moment of our lives, we need your grace, your mercy, your power. And so we ask for it now, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. Some of these things today are complicated things, but I pray that you would give us grace to hear and understand as, as best we can. And then, Father, that we would be set in our hearts in such a way that we would see the glory of Jesus through the truths that are presented here this morning from your word. Help us, Father. Help us to concentrate. Help us to, to think clearly. And I pray that this rich theology would result in deep doxology in our hearts as we worship you and praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, we are undeserving, and you are so good, and so we praise you and give you thanks for it all now in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, not long ago, I was asked to share uh, with a, a group of friends my most embarrassing moment. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't have to think long or hard to come up with such a moment. It all started, as I remember, by setting up a lunch appointment with a man who was visiting the church. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Lord had me invite Jason just to make it a little more embarrassing. As I recall, we all piled into my car, we drove down the chilies for a nice meal, and since I was the one who had called the meeting and feeling especially generous that day, I invited them to order anything off the menu that they desired. And sure enough, we had an excellent meal together. And uh, we had some really sweet gospel fellowship. It was the perfect lunch meeting. Until it wasn't. You probably already guessed what happened next. The server stopped by the table with check in hand. I, still feeling rather generous at the thought of leaving her a nice tip, I reached for my wallet, and it wasn't there. So I searched my pockets, it wasn't there. As I recall, I even went out to my car. But alas, no wallet. And so what was I to do? I mean, I, I couldn't cancel the order, we had already eaten that. Volunteering to wash dishes didn't seem much better either, and especially in light of the fact that we had a guest with us. I wouldn't mind Jason, you know, washing dishes. For, that would be great. <laughs> Thankfully, however, I realized to my immediate left, there sat a dear friend, Jason by name, <laughs> who happily declared to me, you're on your own, bro. <laughs> No, not really. Jason would never do that. <laughs> Instead, he reached into his own wallet and became the mediator of a better covenant. <laughs> in fact, he stood in my place bearing my debt and paid it in full. And I could probably go too far on this, but... <laughs> now, honesty compels me to inform you that this wasn't just a very embarrassing moment, but a very recurring embarrassing moment, as I have inflicted this on him on a number of occasions. <laughs> but at least I've gained wisdom through the experience. I have learned to invite Jason to all of my lunch <laughs> meetings. <laughs> I tell you this partially fabricated story, <laughs> only partially fabricated, because I want to talk to you about uh, an important Christian doctrine, namely the biblical doctrine of imputation. Now, you know, it's very seldom we do topical sermons, and today is not going to be a topical sermon. I chose this because it was merely the next scripture. And so today, the Holy Spirit wants us to talk about the doctrine of imputation. Now, you re may remember from last time that, uh, that the basic meaning of the word imputation is this. 
to charge or to reckon something to someone's account. To charge or reckon something to one's account. In the case of the embarrassing moment at lunch, my debt was graciously imputed to Jason. He took my debt upon himself and paid it as if it were his own. Now, as we have studied Paul's letter to the Romans, we have repeatedly seen that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God the Father imputes the debt of lost sinners to the account of Christ. And he imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ onto the account of the undeserving, helpless sinner. In fact, theologians even refer to this as double imputation because two things are happening, not just one. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the core of the gospel. That is our only hope, that God, by his grace, would give us his righteousness imputed to us and to all who believe. This is arguably the most precious and important component of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you remember, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's, he's kind of peeling back uh, the surface of the gospel that we always see, we always hear, we always sing about, and he's taking us in deep. So we can kind of see the inner workings of that beautiful stopwatch or or have you ever had a Swiss watch or seen the inside of one? The intricacies that are in there, and they all work together beautifully. It's a glorious thing to see what is deep in the heart of the gospel. Because by seeing deep into the heart of the gospel, we see deeply into the heart of God. As long as there has been a church, God's people have sung about imputation. It's hard to put that word in a song, but that's what we sing. All of my sin for all of his righteousness. And it's not just us. Every church, every church sings songs, no matter, no matter the language. But when we gather, we sing about imputation. More importantly, we see we see it powerfully rendered in inspired text such as 2 Corinthians 5.21, which was already mentioned this morning. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's imputation. That's the core of the gospel. The question I raised last week was this. Can the doctrine of imputation stand the test of Old Testament biblical precedent? Do we have precedent for this? In other words, is there a legal warrant for the imputation of my sin to the account of someone else? And the answer to that question is gloriously, yes. Yes. But that's not the only thing on Paul's mind. As he teaches us about our so great salvation, he wrestles with how sin can be so universally per pervasive. It, it's just everywhere in the world. How can that be? How can it be that every person who has ever been born into this world is a sinner? How can it be that pervasive? I mean, you think of COVID-19. It, it, I mean, nobody even saw it coming. You can never see it. We still can't see it, at least not with the naked eye. But it originated from somewhere, and it got all of us, almost. And the almost just tells us that, that the pervasiveness of sin is even greater. And it's more deadly This is what Paul has been trying to teach us. He wants us to see the, the global nature of sin, the universal nature of sin, but he also wants us to see 
that there is someone who is greater than our sin. No matter how much sin there is, no matter how severe a particular sin may be, grace is greater than all our sin. In preparation for this message this morning, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word, and let's read the text before us. And it is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We're going to have to move fast this morning because I need to cover everything. Uh, otherwise, this is going to get chopped up over the next few weeks. So Romans 5, 12 through 21, and here we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one transgression brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's, one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. This morning I have three hooks to kind of hang our thoughts on. And here's what they are. They should be printed in your bulletin. Number one, the authenticating pattern. We're talking about imputation. And the whole thing about Adam is the pattern that helps us understand what Paul is talking about, the authenticating pattern. Number two, the first and second Adam. Number three, the righteous and gracious sovereign. And by God's grace, we're going to cover all three. So listen fast. So my hope this morning is that we will all come away with a renewed assurance that Jesus is able to secure our justification because God appointed him to be a better representative for us than Adam. So let's dive in. Let's begin by looking once again at verse 12. Let's isolate verse 12 for a moment where we invested most of our time together two weeks ago. Briefly, Paul writes, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now stop there. And uh, stop here is not a decision that I've made. It's actually a decision that the inspired author made. In, in this text, this text establishes the fact that the the doctrine of imputation is nothing new. That's why I've entitled this point the authenticating pattern. Usually when the biblical author talks about a person being lost or saved, they speak in binary terms like, 
lost and saved, or belief and unbelief, or, or justified or condemned. But here we discover something even more basic and more fundamental. Paul moves from what has taken place volitionally in a person's heart and sovereignly in the heart of God to just the reality of how things work. There's something more basic going on here that human beings have no control over. Paul's whole point in this passage is that in this world, every person stands before God, not merely in himself. Now, picture yourself standing before God. One day that's going to happen. And Paul says that his goal in his life is to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, right? But I don't want you to think, at least not in this context, Paul doesn't want you to think of you standing there by yourself. Rather, you stand. You stand in your representative head, whoever that may be. And let me just tell you, there are only two representative heads that God acknowledges. In his eyes, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are either united to Adam or you are united with Christ. As you're, you may be a descendant of Adam spiritually, or spiritually speaking, you can be a descendant of Christ. And whether you are a descendant of Adam or Christ makes all the difference in the world forever. Now here we have the great problem that the gospel is designed to remedy. You see, every human being born into the world is a spiritual descendant of one of these two men. Each of these is a representative head. Therefore, when Adam rebelled against God, listen carefully, when Adam rebelled against God, you rebelled against God. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that. You're going to have to go back if you didn't hear it last time. But when Adam rebelled against God, you rebelled against God. When he ate the forbidden fruit, you ate the forbidden fruit. Because Adam is man's representative head, his actions and his decisions were imputed to you because he is your representative head. And this means that there is actually a third kind of imputation. We talked about double, double imputation. There's actually a third. Follow this. We understand that in salvation, God imputes our sin to Jesus. We also know that God imputes Christ's righteousness to everyone who believes. But there's another act of imputation that most of us are very unfamiliar with, and perhaps last time we met, or last time I preached anyway, was your first introduction to this. But here we go. This passage teaches us that in the Garden of Eden, Eden Adam sinned. And since Adam was the representative head of all humanity, his sin was imputed to us. His sin was imputed to us. Just as our sin was imputed to Christ, and to complete the triangle, Christ's righteousness gets imputed to all who believe. So, as we learned last week, our problem is not merely that we have personally and actually committed sins, causing us to become the objects of God's just and righteous wrath. Although, that is certainly true. It is true. Nevertheless, the fact is, long before we ever committed any sins, Adam condemned us all by his sin in the Garden of Eden when he rebelled against God in your place. You see why we need the imputation of Christ's righteousness? We're looking deeply into the heart of the gospel, and this is what God reveals. Because he was created as man's representative head, his guilt before God became our guilt before God. This is the most fundamental problem the gospel must resolve. And I'm happy to report to you that it does.
fully and completely. Thanks be to God. The gospel remedies our greatest problem. Before we move on, however, let me point out a structural detail that is difficult to wrap our heads around. I've mentioned to you that uh, most commentaries, in fact, everyone that I've read, have said in their own varying words that this is the most difficult passage in the whole book of Romans. And I'm not going to go into all of the reasons why. I'm only going to mention one, and that is uh, I mentioned here at the end of chapter, or verse 12, I said, stop, and then I said, I'm not making you stop. It's the author who's making you stop. At the end of verse 12, you might see a dash, like in the NAS, or a bracket, which I think might be KJV. We'll have to ask Russ about that. Or a parenthesis may be there. That's because at the end of verse 12, Paul seems to lose his train of thought. Praise God, hallelujah, amen. <laughs> in that sense and in that sense of alone, I'm like Paul. But it's as if Paul is exceedingly eager to unveil the glorious remedy for man's predicament, which he will do in verses 18 and 21, just a few minutes away, but he suddenly realizes that his readers will probably not be able to grasp the dire situation that they're in apart from Christ if he doesn't include some other clarifying details. And so he suddenly stops and he changes the whole course of the conversation. In fact, what you could do, and I'm not going to do this now, this is part of what I'm not going to show you, it would just take too much time. But at the end of verse 12, you could go from the end of verse 12 to the beginning of verse 17. If you were to meld the two of them together, it would be almost seamless. So there's this parenthesis, and some theologians will say, yeah, and there's parentheses inside the parentheses, which is why we're not going there. I mean, if I can't do a baby dedication, I'm not going to be able to do that. So the end of verse 12 seems, he seems to lose his train of thought. He understands that his readers are going to need to know more if they're going to appreciate what he's trying to teach. And notice what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. This is what he says. This is kind of in the parenthesis. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, did you follow all that? Well, that's why I am here. I'm going to help you sort all of that out. I realize that's, that's a mouthful. There's a lot here. If there ever was a mouthful out of the Apostle Paul, this is it. And so again, let me make an attempt to simplify. Someone might have asked, how do we know that sin is as pervasive, was as pervasive in the years between Adam and the law, or between Adam and Moses, as it is today? How do we know that sin is that big a problem? How do we know that there's not pockets of no sin among humanity? After all, isn't the law, isn't the law the measuring stick of what is called sinful? I mean, we've all learned this. Sin is any transgression of the law. So how can there be sin if there's not law, which is the, the, uh, the way it was between Adam and Moses. Before, uh, before Moses gave the law, there was no law. Does that make sense? And so people are asking, how can there be, how can we know there was sin, that pervasive sin throughout humanity, even before the law came along? And Paul doesn't deny Paul doesn't deny this, but you may remember in Romans 2.15 that he also taught us that the law of God is written not only in tablets of stone, but written in your heart. You know 
Whenever someone comes to me and they say, I don't believe in God, I always say something like, God doesn't believe you don't believe in God. Or I'm an atheist. God doesn't believe in atheists. The reality is you know. You know there is a God, and therefore you know intuitively that you are accountable to him. The problem is you don't want to be accountable to him. Here, however, he reminds us that even though the law of God had not yet been carved in stone by the fingers of God on Sinai, sin was everywhere. How do we know? Here's Paul's answer. How do we know? The answer might surprise you. We know that sin and its resulting guilt was all over the world, even before Moses, because we see death everywhere. We see death everywhere. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's death, there's sin. And it doesn't even have to be the sin of the individual who just died. Because we have this imputed sin that comes from our first representative head. We were already condemned before we did anything good or bad. In his book, The Battle for the Beginning, John MacArthur talks about the reality that sin is the result, um, sin is the cause of death. Death is the result of sin. And so he writes this, Scripture teaches that there was no such thing as death prior to Adam's fall. Death is the result of sin. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, Romans 5.12. The curse of sin has adversely affected all of creation. The Apostle Paul wrote, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see what he's saying? It's not just that the pervasive sin affected humans. It affected everything in creation. You see the things that are happening globally in the environment? We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. The whole world is groaning, longing for the day of the children of God when we will be brought into the kingdom of God the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. For we know that the whole creation, Paul says, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, Romans 8, 20 through 22. And so all of creation, not merely humanity, was adversely affected by Adam's sin. This is a big deal. This is where it all began. This is where all the trouble started. That's what Paul teaches here in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So, there is death in the world because there is sin in the world. And that's what the record shows after Adam's sin, right? Didn't take long. First, there was spiritual death. Adam and Eve were cast out of the fellowship with God in the garden because of their sin. And then came physical death. Witness the narrative of Cain and Abel, where the one brother killed the other, murdered the other. Consider the record of Genesis that Jason has been taking us through. How it records a, a long list, a long heritage of family heads who lived and had so many children and lived for so many years. And then at the end of that that narrative will be these words, and he died. And then he picks up another one, and he died. And another one, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. What does all of this death mean? It means we have a problem. Our problem is sin. Sin has caused death. Moreover, consider the great flood in the days of Noah. 
God's judgment fell on the entire human race with the exception of Noah and his family. Everyone else, what's the word? Died. They all died. As Paul has already explained, sin entered the world through one man and death by sin. And the evidence for that is everywhere. And it is everywhere for all time. It's true that those who sinned and died between Adam and Moses did not sin in exactly the same way that Adam did. He says so here that, that this sin was not like Adam's sin in the sense that Adam was in a garden. It's a perfect environment. He lived before the face of God. He had perfect fellowship with God. God gave him not ten commands, but one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge in good and evil or you will surely die. And he ate. And God cast him out of the garden. The rest of us, we were never in the garden. And we weren't given that specific admonition, but it doesn't matter. Because Adam sinned, we sinned. And because we sinned in Adam, we are condemned with Adam. So it's true but those who sinned and died between Adam and Moses didn't sin just like him, but they are guilty the same as him. In that sense, Adam was like Christ. He was like Christ, Paul says. Paul says, look at verse 14, that Adam was a type, it's typos in the Greek, so that makes it easy, or a pattern that we would see in Christ. How so? Well, like Adam, Jesus would become the representative head of all who would identify with him. In that sense, Jesus is like Adam. He is the other representative head. He was the representative head that everyone from the expulsion of Adam on was looking forward to and hoping for. And the Old Testament's promised. He is the one, here's how Paul says it, he is the one who was to come. He was the one to, who was to come. Said differently, he is the promised Messiah, the seed of Adam. The very one that the prophets foretold would come from God to be the Savior of the world. Now I think this point, at this point it's in, imperative for me to say that Paul's ultimate goal here is not to convince you that there is legal precedent for the doctrine of imputation, although that is true and we do get that here. Rather, Paul's primary goal is to exalt Christ in your heart because of who he is, because he is our representative head who has the authority and the power to do what Adam could not do, Jesus can save you from the wrath of God. Adam sends you to the wrath of God. Jesus, the other mediator, rescues us from the wrath of God. To do that, Paul draws a clear and vivid contrast between these two representatives. That is, in order for us to see the glory of Christ. He contrasts the two, and that brings us to the second point. First, Paul shows us the Old Testament pattern that authenticates the doctrine of imputed sin by which all humans are condemned in Adam. Now he feels the need to compare the damning deficiency of Adam with the saving sufficiency of Christ. So let's invest a few minutes in this contrast. And I just want to call it the first and second Adam, verses 15 through 17. Now you may wonder why I'm referring to them as the first Adam and the second Adam. Well, if you will, turn with me to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. We, we, it's, it's a huge chapter. It's a, a, a really important chapter on resurrection. But there's just a couple of statements here that I want, want to point you to, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to make a point on verse 45, first of all. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Here, Paul, this same Paul, refers to Adam as the first man. You see that? You say, well, why does he say that? We already knew that. We knew he was the first man. Okay. But let's go on. Two verses later, verse 47, he refers to Jesus as the second man. Huh. Well, wait a minute. He can't be the second man in the sense, in the same sense that Adam was the first man to ever live on earth. That can't be what he's saying. Because there were so many centuries of time between the first man and Jesus. So he must be thinking about something else. What's he thinking about? Now, it's not my purpose to exposit this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, but here's my question. Why does Paul refer to Adam and Jesus as the first man and the second man? And the answer clearly is this, that after Adam, there were many men who were born into the world before the birth of Jesus, right? Many, many men were brought into the world before the birth of Jesus. You see, Adam was not only the first man who existed in the world, he was also something else. He was also the first representative of mankind and head over the whole human family. And there was never an, another like him until the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas morning when young Mary in probably a, a guest room in someone's house where there was a manger, all the beauty, beauty that we think about of that time and the sadness of that time and the glory of that time. But it wasn't until that very moment that another representative came. Beloved, if he had not come, there would be no representative who had the authority to save you. He came to be the living representative of all who would believe. And through him, everyone who believes is justified, saved from the wrath of God forever. So let's compare these two. I'm, I'm going to do this very briefly because of time. Let's look at this very briefly. Paul sets them before us in contrast. He wants us to see the damning deficiency of the one against the saving sufficiency of the other. Beloved, this is important because we will never grasp the true glory of Christ and his gospel until we see what the gospel rescues us from. To introduce Adam in this discussion of the gospel... It's like positioning a black velvet square under the precious diamond rings so that its sparkling facets can be appropriately seen and appreciated. And so let's look at this black backdrop. What does Adam offer humanity? Verse 15. Many died through the one man's trespass. What does Adam contribute to us, to mankind? Sin that produces death. Sin that produces death. If you think, beloved, that man's ideas and man's philosophies and man's thinking and man's conniving can save you, or even that you can come up with some perhaps artificial or even biblical set of commandments by which you can recommend yourself to God and he accept you apart from Christ, it will never happen. No one in history was better equipped to maintain fellowship with God forever than Adam. But he failed. God didn't give Adam 
the commandments that he gave Moses. He only gave him one prohibition, and he failed to keep it. R.C. Sproul says it went like this. God came to man and his wife and said, I command you to eat and enjoy everything in the garden, including one another. Be fruitful and multiply. Only one prohibition, though. There's a pit, a deep pit, on the, on the left side of the garden. It's there. It's dangerous. Don't go near it. If you fall into the pit, you will never, ever, ever get out. And so the Lord went back to whatever he was doing, and Adam and Eve ran over and jumped into the pit. <laughs> what Adam won for you is only judgment and condemnation and death. Look at verse 17. Because of Adam's disobedience and rebellion against God, death came into the world. The first Adam brought us death. Paul says, Adam's sin has such a grip on this world, one might say, death is king. And notice the word he uses. It reigns, death reigns through Adam. You know, some people say that the only things you that are that are unshakable or unshakably true are death and taxes, right? We all know about taxes, but death is. You can count on that. In verse 18, Paul emphasizes again that Adam brought condemnation. This is his contribution. But let's consider the other representative head the other representative head that God has sent on our behalf, what does he offer humanity? Verse 15, Christ offers what Paul calls the free gift that is not like the trespass. It is completely different. Instead of bringing death and condemnation, the free gift brings life, eternal life. So what is this free gift? It's not law. It's grace. It's grace. He says so. And not just a little grace. Paul says it is abounding grace. It is abounding grace. Abounding here means simply in abundance. And Paul will argue this later in, in the book of Romans. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. This is the free gift in verse 16. Furthermore, this free gift does not pretend there was no trespass or no sin. But even after, notice how he words this, even after many transgressions, and you might think, well, I could imagine God giving the free gift before I sinned, but that's not what he says. Even after many transgressions, it brings, what's the word here? Justification. Beloved, this is where this was going all along the way. Paul's been talking about your justification. Even from the beginning, the just shall live by faith. Again and again, he talks about justification, justification, justification. This is God declaring us righteous. How can God legally declare us righteous? Well, he shouldn't if we get what we deserve. Why? Because we've not only committed actual sin, but we belong to Adam. We live in Adam. We are united with Adam. But in Jesus, this free gift is given, the, the gift the grace of justification. Paul wants to make sure he covers every pathway toward understanding that there's no way you can earn justification. Verse 17, Paul simply adds that the free gift brings righteousness. And that is what justification is all about. It's what the gospel provides in Christ, grace, free 
and superabounding grace. Charles Spurgeon said, since we are helpless sinners, salvation must be a free gift, must be a free gift. God bestows it on people without regard to any merit, supposed or real. Grace has to do with the guilty. Grace, by its nature, is, is not a proper gift for the righteous and deserving, but for the undeserving and sinful. Christ saves them, not because he perceives that they have done anything good, or have hopeful traits of character, or, whom for, from, uh, or who form uh, resolutions to aspire to something better, but simply because God is merciful. And simply because God delights to exercise that aspect of his being, namely his grace, and manifest it as free favor and infinite love. By this, the Son of God is glorified. You see, at the end of the day, the whole salvation equation is not about us. It's not primarily about us. We are the beneficiaries. But what God is doing is magnifying his Son. Beloved, one thing I want you to take away from this deep and perhaps in some places incomprehensible uh, you know, I've been studying this all week, two weeks, and there's still parts of it that I don't grasp. Why did he say this? Why did he do that? If you, if you feel a little bit of that, I do too. But there's one thing I want you to take away, if nothing else, and it's this. I want you to take away this one statement. There is more grace. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. There is more grace, superabounding grace, more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. And this brings us to the conclusion. The righteous and gracious sovereign. Verses 18 through 21. I say righteous because Jesus accomplished all this through one righteous act. Our dear Presbyterian brothers refer to this as Christ's active obedience. He lived the perfect life so that there would be real righteousness. He also, he also gave himself over to the cross and death and punishment for you. It was by his own accord. It was voluntary. It was propitiatory. It was his death on the cross. And he did it of his own accord. And he did it in obedience to the Father. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And so that's why I say this is gracious. I, I say it's sovereign because Paul says that this grace reigns, there's that word again, where death reigned, now grace reigns in Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, let there be no mistake, Adam sinned. He sinned egregiously, and the sin that he committed, he committed for you. The sin that he committed, he committed for you. On the other hand, Jesus never sinned. He always obeyed the Father, and then he died. And every time he obeyed, and whenever he died, he obeyed and died for you. He obeyed and died as if you obeyed and died. He came into the world as the second man and the last Adam for one purpose, to glorify the Father by doing what Adam failed to do and to die for what Adam and all his offspring deserve. So let me close by simply offering this to you 
by the very words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning with verse 18, after saying and explaining that to, to our hard heads, he brings us this final conclusion, verse 18 through 21. Therefore, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And we'll delve into that comment in weeks to come. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <clears throat> so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Enough said. Father, thank you for, these, for the simple scriptures. Thank you for the hard ones. Because you reveal more and more and more how you designed the gospel and how in the mystery of your sovereign grace you have planned it all. None of us claim to understand it fully, but you've revealed enough and given us clarity enough that we can understand everything that you want us to know. And you have provided sufficiently in this book everything that we need to know. We praise you, Father. And we give you thanks for it now. We ask you to use it to change us, cause us to worship you more ardently for the glory of our Savior and the magnifying of the glory of the Father as well. We pray in the Spirit and in Jesus' name.